kind of goofy the way these backdrops work, but um, there we are. Now you've got a zebra, I've got a buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you love buffaloes, eh, and bison. You know, a number of years ago, I went out to meet with an 80 odd year old shaman. He was German, but he'd been trained by the natives in the ways of shamanic healing and interpretation. And he read, I took my I took my regular doctor out with me and met with this guy and he read our energy. And believe it or not, my doctor's energy was that of the Sandhill crane. And she looked at him like, what? And he started describing the attributes of the Sandhill crane, how it raises, how it runs a family, all that stuff. She started to cry because it was so accurate relative to her thought processes. And then he read mine and it was the, um, the bison, the buffalo. And that's really where this all started. I've always been fascinated by the bison and the buffalo. Um, again, mixed names, all that stuff. But uh, no, it was him that said, this is really about you. And he described it as, you know, protecting your family, always putting your face to the wind, all that sort of stuff. And it was just kind of an interesting um, base case. So yes, the bison and uh, or bison buffalo, whatever has been uh, sort of one of the iconic and this backdrop was chosen by one of my staff because they saw it had prairie and mountains and clouds and weather and buffalo. <laughs> Lovely. Back when you had talked about it, I remember because that's when I started following you. We didn't really have entrepreneurship in the prairies. And like you said, it was a taboo word. And all of a sudden now it's become this trend where every millennial, if they start something, they're an entrepreneur. Do you feel yeah. like there's this odd shift now what's well, a real there, there's, certainly, there's been a shift in terms of the acceptance you know when i uh, when i did my mba at haskane i was the first graduate number 221 i was graduate 221 or 222 i've kind of forgotten now but uh, i was the first to take a specialization in entrepreneurship Others before me had qualified for it, but chose to just list themselves as generalists because they were concerned that by being labeled as an entrepreneur, they couldn't get a job. Mm. And that was the mindset at the time. Now, I quite carefully described my degree as a specialization in entrepreneurship with a sub-focus on finance. And I could say that because I'd been a, the, I was the class tutor or the marking teaching assistant for finance. And uh, so I was clearly recognized for some knowledge and skill in finance. And as an engineer, I wasn't afraid of accounting or finance in terms of the mathematics. So it was, um, it was a fascinating experience. But, you know, marketing was the part of my MBA program that I really fell in love with. And it was ultimately what set me apart from my own competition, you know, in terms of getting a job, moving forward. And, you know, everything I did in the world of investment banking had a marketing angle to it. And traditionally, it was all about finance. There was, why would you care about marketing? Well, we have to sell ourselves. We have to sell the individuals, the company, the service, the product. And uh, there's an element of marketing. And for me, falling into the world of marketing stirs those entrepreneurial juices. And that goes back. So I took the label of entrepreneurship. Ultimately, I live it, I breathe it. But you know what really pivoted the change in Canada? And I, again, I make fun of it a bit because I was part of it, but there was Dragon's Den. It raised the profile of the conversation about starting a business. And, you know, sure, there was a lot of uh, goofy rhetoric coming out of the dragons. I'm not investing in you because you have no sales. And, you know, I'm, I need 51% of your business and all sorts of sort of some goofiness that made good TV. But more importantly, there was hundreds and hundreds and now thousands and thousands of people came to Dragon's Den to pitch their idea, to pitch their dream. 
And, you know, some of their dreams got blown away and rightly so, and others uh, turned into something pretty interesting, but that's the nature of entrepreneurship. And so I think Dragon's Den did a phenomenal job, whether they meant to or not, of inspiring a country to respect the word entrepreneurship. And by the way, I'll just quickly jump. I have a daughter who finished an engineering degree and she finished that and said, dad, I really don't want to sit at a desk and be an engineer. What does she do now? She's a chef with a holistic nutrition program. And she and her husband are renovating an old log cabin to turn into a lodge and a bed and breakfast out near Pemberton. That's entrepreneurship, 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 and entrepreneurship. And she's never studied it, never trained it. I hope to think that, I like to think that some of, you know, my own experiences might have rubbed off on her. But those were decisions she made on her own with her husband. I had nothing to do with any of that. So she's using her engineering degree because it taught her how to think, taught her how to learn, taught her how to assess, analyze, review, and make decisions. But she's not working with a ring on her finger in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Now, here's one for you. What's going on? Maybe podcast her. I should. I was actually thinking about that because I have um, an account called Grubbed at Grubbed, and it works with all the restaurants in Calgary, whether it's social media content and whatnot. And I think I want her on there because what she's doing with the holistic stuff is huge. World of entrepreneurship. Why did you start a bed and breakfast and then they rebranded it as a lodge and the economics appear to be compelling in terms of what they're doing. They're, in fact, they want to rent the cabin so badly that they're renovating the barn that came with the site. And the barn they'd contemplated tearing down, they're renovating it so they can live in it. <laughs> That's, That's entrepreneurship. A, a big shift. That's yeah. a big shift. Entrepreneurship 101, exactly. Anyway, How do you I'll feel about it as a dad? Oh, I couldn't be prouder, but I'm fascinated. And I love watching as they evolve what they're doing. And, you know, I, my, <laughs> I have a, another daughter who was a little frustrated by the concept of business because that was what kept me away in terms of when we were raising our family. But when I watch what she's doing now, she's got an app, she's got online programs, she's marketing. I mean, I watch what she's doing and it's extraordinarily entrepreneurial. And she's got a PhD in something, but really at the end of the day, she's doing some very entrepreneurial experiences. So anyway. So proud dad you are. Have to be. <laughs> yeah. Now, Brett, you grew up, in Saskatchewan, North Battleford, Saskatchewan, was it always a, a happy-go-lucky childhood for yourself? Well, you know, in terms of family and friends, absolutely. You know, I had, uh, you know, parents that were active in the community, sisters who were active in sports, and you know, we all did everything, you know, whether it was uh, hockey, soccer, football, baseball, um, choir. I mean, there was a little bit of everything. So we were pretty active and engaged in the community in that sense. Um, having said that for me, I skipped a grade when I was really, really young. I did three grades in two years. So, um, and I was small for my age. So as I got going, by the time I'm in grade eight, nine, and 10, I'm a year younger and I am considerably smaller. And I just became the, the brunt of a fair bit of, uh, you know, we used to just call it being picked on. Now, in the today's world, the connotation of the right word would be bullying and um, constant bullying. Um, but I stayed away from some people and stayed close to others. And I think many people live what I lived. I mean, I'm not pretending that I had a unique experience in that sense. Um, but so for me, getting out of North Battleford, I finished high school, I was 16 years mm -hmm. old. Getting out of North Battleford was um, my priority. Now, having said that, mm -hmm. 40 years later, one of my priorities is in fact giving 
to North Battleford. And there's a lot of work we've been doing in terms of the charity, charity side and community. But going back, so finishing high school, first thing I did was head to Saskatoon. And I remember my first day in engineering school looking around and the guys in that engineering class, there was maybe three girls and a hundred guys. And the guys were geeks. They were nerds. They were completely devoid of personality. And I looked at them and said, hmm, I fit in. I'm exactly what these guys are. You know, the, uh, the glasses had tape, the shoelaces were knotted, the, uh, the shirts might not have been as clean as they could be. And, uh, but again, some really bright, uh, as I said to many, many times, there was Prairie Boys from across Saskatchewan came rolling in to do engineering degrees. And so I became one of them. And it really was uplifting because there was no judgment. Nobody knew whether their fathers drove Cadillacs or uh, beat up rusty old Fords. It didn't matter. People were there and they were on a very equal footing. And you were judged based on how well you did in the class, not what you wore, not where you grew up. There was no measurement in that sense. And that's the beauty of sort of going to a, a smaller town university in the context of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. You always talk about one thing in marketing as well. Side note, post-purchase dissonance. Why is that so important to you? It's the reinforcement model. And I use an example. I did buy a really nice BMW one time and probably paid too much for it, but it was a beautiful little sports car. A year to the day after I bought it, the manager of the dealership showed up on my doorstep with a book. And it was about an inch thick book of pictures of the history and the development and the construction of this car. And it had pictures of the construction team, the last six or eight people that worked on the car, there was a bunch of Polaroids on the front page as you opened the book of them waving to me as the purchaser of the car. Post-purchase dissonance, reinforcing brand after the decision's been made. And it often happens with larger investments and purchases, buy a house, buy a stock, buy a nice suit, and you start to rethink it. And that's where the branding moment is in reinforcing the power of the brand that you bought, which is why, you know, Hugo Boss may not send you um, a thank you for buying my suit, but they will be running ads. They will reinforce that the decision you made to buy Hugo Boss or it uh, looks like Robert Graham on you. Um, I had to. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> but it's the, it's the reinforcement of the brand. And I appreciate that. So that's the post-purchase dissonance argument or position is just something that a lot of people don't even think about. And that's why, for example, when I was with First Energy, one of our priorities was to build brand, not just to sell stock, not just to make money, but to build brand, because building brand is about tomorrow and the day after that. We also were very aggressive at marketing our firm and what we did through charity, through business, but we marketed it to the people who were our clients, our past clients, future clients, present clients, all important. We don't walk away from old relationships. And then just as importantly, spouses of those clients. And that was often in the charitable community, but making sure that the wife or husband of one of our clients who was involved with the charity was aware that we were backing their charity. So connecting to the charity, connecting to spouses and clients, but we also made a real effort to bring community leaders into our world. And community leaders, you know, a Nan McCaig, a uh, Nan and Bud McCaig, who had nothing to do with the energy industry, nothing to do with First Energy, but they were community leaders. And they started watching what we were doing and they'd come and show up at some of our events and people go, oh, I get a chance to talk to. And so it was brand reinforcement. And I also have this concept that I developed and I'm sure there's a proper term for it in marketing, but I call it brand rub 
where you take two brands and you literally rub them together. When we did our first event as First Energy, we invited the oldest law firm in Alberta, Bennett Jones, to be our partner. So we're the newest investment bank with the oldest law firm. And the benefit that we got by brand rubbing with them, they lifted our brand in terms of acknowledgement because people are going, don't know who First Energy is, but I sure know who Bennett Jones is. And so it was a mutually symbiotic relationship because we did all the work. The Bennett Jones guys got to invite clients, friends, and family. We did the same and we ran several charity events together. Did the same thing with Goldman Sachs in New York. Goldman Sachs, one of the iconic investment banks, we discovered that they wanted to do an energy conference. Well, here's First Energy in Calgary wanting to do an energy conference in New York. So for five, six, seven years, it was branded as First Energy and Goldman Sachs. You can't get more extraordinary brand rub and post-purchase dissonance is managed through that brand rub because people feel good about the decision they've made. So we ultimately developed the um, industry-leading um, investor conferences. But again, brand rub. Super cool. Holy. <laughs> kind of what we're doing right now. Exactly. I'm lifting to the zebra on the wall. Yeah, and vice versa on the virtual buffalo. Mm-hmm. Now, Brett, when you were growing up, was was family life huge for you? Mom and dad, were they big on your upbringing and what you are today? You know, I didn't respect it at the time. Mm-hmm. But as I became a parent trying to work, um, or I was working and I was a parent, and trying to work and right. keep my health, physical, emotional, and mental, and raise some children, I had a brand new appreciation for the extraordinary job my parents had mm-hmm. done. You know, my dad and mom were around at all times. Um, you know, dad would be on the road. He'd drive home at night from 30, 40, 50, 100 miles away just so he could coach a baseball game or be part of. And I just assumed that all dads did that. I just assumed that all moms mm-hmm. went out and taught parenting courses. Mom was a social worker. Um, so I took for granted who they were and what they did. Um, it's just sort of that's that's what parents do until I became a parent and realized this is a lot of work and had a new appreciation. So, uh, yeah, they were incredible role models. And as much as I maybe wanted to get out of North Battleford as quick as I could, I realized that having them as the sort of the base point or the building blocks of my own ultimate, my goals, my dreams, my my definitions of um, what, what mattered to me uh, was pretty important. My mom died this year in August will be two years and she died at 54 and I was 30 years old. Your mom died at 30. I was 30 years old and my mom happened to be 56. So the stories are very parallel Mm -hmm. and um, she died of cancer. I'm not sure what, what took your mother. Same. Yeah. Yeah. So you sort of go along expecting 70, 80, somewhere in there. And then all of a sudden, someone that important gets torn out of your life. It's pretty hard. You know, accepting, adapting, understanding, uh, you know, might have been the first time I ever really saw my dad cry. You know, it was when I lost my mom. So it was, it was pretty tough on all of us because it, uh, you know, she retired in May and died in July. It was that quick. Wow. So, but you know, the, I mean, you've, you've lived it. You understand 100%. how devastating cancer can be. Oh, yes. And... Uh... How did you get through it? And, you know, obviously at your age now, do you still think about your mom, Brett? Well, it's been, you know, call it 34 years. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's hard, uh, hard not to think about her 
from yeah. time to time. Obviously, with time, it's less and less. But uh, um, I also had the good fortune of dad remarrying a woman who I also called mom. Mm. Absolutely fell in love with this woman. And she died about five, six years ago uh, of Lou Gehrig's ALS. Yes. And uh, that was also very hard. So there's just uh, you know, a couple of stories like that that resonate. But I was very close to both of them. And as I say, I proudly called both of them mom. Wow, that's beautiful. Is your dad doing okay? How's he been? I know he's used to be all around the world somewhere, but... He was traveling a lot. So unfortunately, dementia was really hard on him. And he died last September, one week short of his 90th birthday. And I, I can tell you, I didn't cry when he died. And that was because I expected it. Number one, two, it was a blessing because his dementia left him very uncertain. He didn't know where he was, what he was doing. And uh, he had no functional life in the sense that dementia had taken, um, taken control. There were tears, of course, when we did our, we did a family Zoom mm-hmm. funeral and we could have done a small live funeral, but we did a large Zoom funeral. And uh, it was pretty emotional as everyone was telling their stories of how, where they met dad, where they last saw dad. But uh, no, he was an, uh, you know, he was an adventurer. And uh, I remember one of my fondest memories, I was telling someone the story just yesterday, it was put him putting on a wetsuit for the first time at age 83. So he could get in a shark cage with me off the south coast of Africa and uh, watch white sharks, uh, white, uh, great white sharks swim around and uh, bump into the cage. So, uh, 83 no, he, years old. He was Holy. 83. That was his first wetsuit. <laughs> Good Lord. That's awesome. That's, that's a cool dad you had. Yeah. yeah. He was, he was really a lot of fun. I do miss him very much. You know, Brett, you always uh, talk about how you wanted to become this guy with a lot of money and be a president of a big company. Mm-hmm. And you were sometimes ashamed of your dad because he sold cars. There was a picture mm-hmm. like that. Absolutely. And, but it was, it was shame in the sense that, you know, I never talked about what he did. I didn't, uh, didn't celebrate that. But as I came to understand what an incredible father and what an incredible person he was, um, you know, I, unfortunately, when I grew up, our house was on the edge of the new neighborhood. And so our house got dragged into the school where all the rich kids went. And my parents weren't part of that. That you know, We were the lawyers, the accountants, the architects, the doctors. Their kids all went to the school I went to. So I was raised in a world where I was always watching what other people had. And not necessarily correctly. I'm not, I'm not proud of that. But it was, um, um, it affected my thinking. And so as a result, I, uh, I downplayed, you know, who dad was, who mom was. And again, dad sold cars and mom was a social worker. Well, they ended up teaching me an awful lot about being a great entrepreneur with a social conscience or a capitalist with a heart, as I sometimes, sometimes put it. So, yeah, there was a time when I described some shame in terms of dad because he wasn't a business success. But as I came to realize how superficial a business success was and how great a father success was, I realized that I really owed him a pedestal to put him on. And that's how I lived. You know, probably the last 20 years of my life was with dad on a pedestal because he, uh, he was always there, always available. We loved travel. Um, he was just, he and his, and his second wife, Ma, Eunice, we just, we spent so much time with him. It was, a, it was a real treat. Was that a part of having a chip on your shoulder when you had come to the, I guess, Calgary, where you're like, I don't want to, 
be that kid anymore and I want to keep pushing forward. And this is when family life took a toll for yourself. Well, there's an element of that. Certainly when I uh, finished engineering, um, well, sorry, I finished engineering, came to Calgary, but that's where three quarters of my classmates came mm -hmm. to Calgary, maybe more. You know, I think I had 13 or 14 job offers. They were just, the, the oil companies were just hiring all the grads they could get their hands on and, and knowing that they'd lose a few along the way. Anyway, I took a job, worked for three or four years with Imperial Oil. They offered a leave of absence program so that I could go back to the job I had if I wanted it, but I could then go to school. So I did. And I did my MBA at the University of Calgary. And coming out of that, I didn't want to go back to being a drilling engineer, of course. And uh, so that cushion, but it was a cushion and it was valuable that Imperial gave me, um, always resonated for me. So I uh, appreciated that. Mm -hmm. But the work world, you know, I spent five years with McLeod Young Weir, one of the big investment banks, now Scotia Capital, Scotia McLeod, great bank, great learning, great training. Um, but they were trying to be a generalist. And they shouldn't say they were trying. They were generalists. They were covering anybody who did business in the West. And I thought that we should be specialists, specialists in the biggest subsector of the Toronto Stock Exchange, which was energy. And so if we said no to, uh, to TELUS and no to Pacific Western Airlines and yeah. no to and let other people in our firm cover them because they were industry specialists. And that's really where the seeds of thinking came that ultimately turned into um, my participation in First Energy um, was the belief that having one product knowledge, and again, it's not like it's narrow, this is wide, and, uh, but we were experts at energy and very happy doing that. How was your family life back then? You know, you, you worked so hard, you were trying to create some sort of wealth. What was the sacrifice and lessons learned? Well, there's a whole bunch of stories that embed in that. One is that I probably didn't have much family life. It mm -hmm. was a fraction of what, in hindsight, I wish I'd had. Um, work pulled at me pretty hard. Every day I worked mm -hmm. was a dollar earned. So a dollar a day off was a dollar not earned. And my my now ex-wife and I had, had our own challenges in terms of our dreams and visions of what we wanted to do with our time and our family. And Hers ultimately became very different than mine, and that's ultimately why. She lives in the country with horses and doesn't travel. I live in the city and love my charity work, and I travel all the time. So, again, just different interests, and not to suggest that one is right and one is wrong, just different. Mm -hmm. And um, so that that really pulled us apart. You know, I, my book is entitled, uh, that I wrote seven, eight, nine years ago, it's entitled uh, Redefining Success. And then the subtitle is called Still Making Mistakes. And when I was negotiating with the, um, the book publisher over how to structure the book and what to call it, one of the comments once made was, why don't you just call the book Still Making Mistakes? And I said, well, my life's not that screwed up. It's a subset of my life. Yeah. You know, the big picture is this question. And so I often challenge when I have a chance to speak to, you know, university or um, maybe more impressionable youth. Um, the question is, how do you define success? And so there's no question that I, in early days, defined success by wealth. And as Rebecca, my daughter, would say, why, Dad, didn't you ever define success by the size of the smile? And really, that's the happiness quotient. And so how can you find your happy place? My uh, brother-in-law once sent out a Christmas card that said, we, we don't need much. We don't have much. Our needs are easily met. We're very happy. And I'm thinking, I have a lot. My needs aren't met, and I'm not happy. So what am I doing wrong? What are they doing right? 
And it really comes down to being um, probably a little more focused on what it is you really want. And uh, to raise a few kids, if you decide to have children and turn them into caring, thoughtful, contributing beings, um, that's success. And that's where at this point in time, I have three children. Each of them has an amazing partner. So I would say I have six successes um, sitting underneath in terms of the world I live in. You had tried to give back at one point in time, and you had talked about one of your daughter's school events, about the, the biggest leaf that you wanted on the school's wall. What was that story about, Brett? Oh, gosh, this goes back in time. <laughs> so at one time, the school was looking at giving people who gave more money bigger leaves on, so they could recognize the donations. And I said, yeah, it makes sense to me. And my daughter, one of them came back and said, why does our leaf have to be any different? And I probably sat for 20 seconds, which is an eternity when you're having a conversation. And said, you know what? I, I can't explain. You know, it's just it was an ego thing. It was recognition. And in every charity, they have their tiers, their levels, and all that stuff. Because my daughter said, well, in this case, what difference does it make? Why don't they just make all the leaves the same size? So there was a tree of life, tree of support, whatever. And every donor to the school, as they were building a, an extension or whatever on the school, was going to get their name on a leaf. Mm. And the bigger leaves was part of the game. But no, they ended up, in fact, a condition of our donation was that all leaves be the same. So why are you or why have you been doing the garden parties? How did this whole thing happen? <laughs> I've always so, been curious. <laughs> the garden party is an event in my backyard where we have. So it's a big backyard, but we'll have over 1,200 people confirmed at any one time. There'll be 800 people rotating in and out. Um, it started as 50 or 100 people with a friend and I who have both have July 1st birthdays. We did a backyard party. And the backyard party was the first year was 50. The next year was 100. The next year it was 200. And then eventually this woman, the part, my friend, dear friend, uh, said, look, this is getting out of control. You take it because <laughs> it was my house, my party. And so I just took it over and it evolved from kind of a birthday party because I don't need anything for birthday parties. But it became an opportunity to bring people together to showcase musical talent. Sometimes there was the odd speaker. I had uh, um, Shane Coison who does spoken word. So we had a couple of different ways and the comedians we've had, but the real point showcasing young talent to a community of people. And the model was based on, and, and sorry, and for charity, of course there was, and the model was based on work that we'd done at First Energy where we invented the thought that we could have an event and not sell tickets but ask people for money. And that was new. When we started doing that in First Energy's world 30 odd years ago, the fact that we would ask people to bring a check as their contribution, and we didn't tell them how much. We just said, please make it meaningful to you, whether that was 50 bucks or 5,000 bucks, and we had the range. But what that opened up was the opportunity for me to invite the guy who washes my windows, my plumber, my electrician, um, you know, secretaries, receptionists, uh, young engineers, whatever, as well as community leaders and icons and, and you know, call it big, big deals. Um, but they'd all show up equal. And that goes back to the equal leaves. Everybody had written a check that was meaningful to them and they could walk around knowing that they had contributed. 
So it really didn't matter if it was someone who didn't show up who sent me a check for 10 grand or someone who walked around and was writing a check for 50 bucks and um, drinking 50 bucks worth of drink and, and, and food. But the real point is that everyone was equal and we could bring people together. And so it was a great gathering point. And um, it became an, uh, an iconic tradition in my world of family and friends. And there's a number. I became very close friends with a musician named Brett Kissel. And so all of the events that we do are now called Brett Brett. So you'll see the Brett Brett garden party. We did a Brett Brett boat concert out in, uh, we did probably the largest concert in Canada last year during COVID. We had almost 4,000 people on the lake. Windermere at, Valley. Yeah. Yeah, so Brett Brett Boat, we do Brett Brett Golf, Brett Brett Xmas, there's Brett Brett whatever, and uh, and we have a lot of fun doing that. So there's Brand Rock. You know, I come to the table without the ability to sing, and Brett Kissel may come to the table without knowing how to negotiate a bank document, but that's okay, because we're perfectly equal as best friends. Interesting. Have you, how much have you raised now over the years with the garden party? You know, five seven yeah. million dollars I and mean, just i'd have to go back and yeah, no. track which events and what but um no the garden, party, garden party can be three quarters of a million and yeah. christmas concerts a couple a quarter of a million so there's a million bucks a year um yeah it's it's added up but more importantly we've been able to support causes without them having to do a thing they incur no overhead we usually ask them to show up and be in the lobby or the entrance so that they can with a banner explain their cause and you know charities for the garden party it's always adolescent mental health for the christmas concert it's always veterans causes and um, you know they tuck up and overlap with each other and and then you know again different causes different times different places why is mental health so important to you Oh, there's little doubt that that's probably one of the uh, the great stigmas, the great mm -hmm. shames is uh, people and how they judge others relative to mental health. If you cut your hand, you can get a bandaid and everyone's giving you sympathy. Mm -hmm. If you're having a bad day, you know, an emotional mess, uh, depression, anxiety, whatever, then you're judged. Well, snap out of it, get out of it. And that has to end. And that's why I've been so open. You know, Rebecca, my daughter, got on stage at the garden party one year and talked about why people misjudge those who have eating disorders, why she thinks the causes behind eating disorders, or not the causes, but the, uh, the, uh, some of the programs that deal with eating disorders are important and why they're worth supporting. And then she finished her last minute of a three-minute talk was sharing that, how does she know this? she had an eating disorder and she was very open about it. Crowds in tears, dad's on side stage, um, standing with Kelly Rudy, his daughter had told her story of why um, she was always hoping for more good days than bad as they call it. And that was her anxiety and depression issues. And there's Becca talking about what an eating disorder meant to her in terms of her self image and how she fit in with her family and friends and why she hid in the Caribbean for a while and uh, blah, blah, blah. So. Mental health issues abound. You know, there's no question that, um, you know, I've had depression. I know that. Um, March of last year, March, April was depression months for me relative to dealing with COVID, firing the three or 400 people that were in our primary businesses. Who knows how many more were let go? And then trying to figure out, do you fire? Do you bring them back? Do you put them on sus you know, suspended animation, <laughs> suspense? Yeah. Uh, how do you manage all this? And I'm a lender, I'm a borrower, I'm a landlord, I'm a tenant, trying to build and rebuild relationships. And uh, I'm proud to say that by the end of April, 
we had resolved with clarity where we were with all of our banks, all of our lenders, all of our borrowers, and all of our tenants. We'd sorted out everything, papered new deals, and um, it gave comfort to everyone that we do business with that we were there for the long haul. I mean, by a quick example, every tenant in the buildings I own, doesn't matter how many, they got a free month's rent for June. We just uh, reached out to them and said, June is free. Just keep going. No rent payable. And the goodwill that that generated. And then we took July and August and cut the rent in half and moved that half that was delayed out into 2021 so it could be paid at a future point in time. And again, goodwill with tenants. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm building buildings wherever I can right now because I've got people knocking on our door saying we'd like to be a tenant in your building. So, again, goodwill and marketing is probably one of the. What do you do to get out of depression for yourself? Is it meditation? Is it? Oh, there's a range of things. Um, Certainly, I've used um, some supplements. I'm not afraid to admit that I've been down that path in terms of Mm. brain chemistry and brain supplements. There's a brand called Empower that I happen to like. Um, But there's also, you know, health and diet and exercise, all of those things. And then letting go. You know, the office environment, you know, uh, doesn't let go very easily. And I get a kick out of what I do. Absolutely love what I do. Uh, There's no question, which allows me to do it from Monday to Sunday. But having said that, I often now describe every day is a holiday and every day is a work day. So I integrate those things all the time. And there's a, there's just a, it's just a balance point. And it comes back to defining success. You know, if success is just money, well, work, that's all you need to do. But if success is family and friends and health, and you got something else to work with. Thank you, Brett. I'm going to, I have actually Tom Budd again. He knows you. Do you remember Tom Budd? Yeah. Or Jim Kinnear. I know <laughs> Kinnear. There, yeah. Yeah. I know Bud. You know, Bud, as you know, Tom lost two boys yeah. in the last three years, probably now to suicide. Um, Tom was a competitor and he, there was a lot of our, In our business world, Tom was one of the tougher competitors. He was ruthless. And as a result, alienated a lot of his competition. But, you know, when I was doing my first round of cancer treatments many years ago, 20 odd years ago, 22, I had a call from Tom saying, Brett, you're down in Florida. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me a bit more. And I told him where I was and he knew I was down for cancer treatments. He said, give me 24 hours notice and I'll be there for two days. We'll go golfing, do whatever you want. That was a competitor. It kind of stood on the shoulders of others who'd said, if there's anything you want, let me know. And I'm like, well, I don't really want anything. But here was a solid, I will be there. You just open the window, I will be there. Now, it never did work out. And by the way, another story, I had the same thing happen when I was down doing cancer treatments a couple of years ago, three, four, five years ago in Phoenix, Arizona. And a ton of people said, hey, I'll come down, go golfing with you if you want. And it just never came to be because it just, hard to schedule. Then I get a phone call from Brett Kissel and he said, I'm going to be in Phoenix tomorrow. Are you going to pick me up or should I catch a cab? He didn't give me a choice. He showed up and we had three glorious days doing whatever hockey games, golf, whatever. But uh, it just speaks to, you know, instead of offering anything, do something. And uh, that's where I still have a big soft spot in my heart for Tom. And by the way, I did Jim Kinnear's first financing when we raised $10 million for a company called Penn Growth against an asset called the Dunvegan. That was back in 1988, probably. Wow, so that's going to be interesting. I'm going to have to bring that up. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. No, another great guy. Yeah. 
Perfect. Thanks so much for your time today, Brett. I appreciate it. Pleasure, Zach. And maybe we should do this again in